This is Manifest Zone, the podcast that explores the breadth and depth of the world of Eberron as a tabletop RPG setting. I'm one of your hosts, Christian Serrano. And I'm Keith Baker. And it's just the two of us. Uh, unfortunately, Wayne can't make it. He was unfortunately in a car accident on his way home. So that's, uh, that's yeah, we're sorry to hear that, Wayne. I uh, hope, hope everybody's I okay. I really hope. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and uh, and Scott, uh, we don't know where he is. He might have fallen into a portal somewhere and is somewhere in Lamania for all we know. So uh, he's he's mysterious. He's shadowy. Yes, he's from the House of Shadows. Indeed. So uh, hopefully we'll hear from them. Hopefully he's okay as well, and uh, nothing nothing bad has happened. So uh, we'll miss both of them today, but um, hopefully they'll be back for the Warforged episode. So we'll see. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so in this episode, we're going to take a look at the elves in Eberron. Now I'm personally really excited about this because I'll be honest, Keith, I have not done Mm -hmm. a lot with elves in Eberron. Um, and so, yeah, so I, I started really like going through all the articles, uh, which we're going to have in the show notes. Uh, so there's the old dragon shard articles, um, the elves of Valinor. I wrote quite a few of them. Yes. Yeah. You were very prolific (laughs) about elves. So, um. Uh, so yeah, so you got the Elves of Valinor part one and two, the Elves of Arenal part one and two, you have House Fjarlin as well, and you also did a, a flashback one on, on Dragon Marks uh, regarding Erni and, and Ternadol. Um, That's right, I did. Yeah. So there's a lot of content. I actually went through that content uh, to prepare for this episode, and uh, but I know you have probably tons more ideas on Elves in general, so I'm, I'm really well, I mean- eager to hear about that. You can't really prepare to talk about elves unless you spend a hundred years mm-hmm. studying them. Is the way I, and even then, really, you're just starting off as a first level character. Frankly. I was just going to say, yeah, you're just starting off at that point. So, um, so I think that's that's an interesting starting point because that longevity that they have um, really talks to or speaks to the relationship that they have with death. And I know you've had some thoughts. Even recently, you were a guest on another podcast, um, Tales from the Fandom. Or you talk a little bit about that as well. Do you want to? Do you want to go ahead and elaborate on that idea? Um, sure. Well, I mean, with all of the races of Eberron, you know, with everything in Eberron starting out, a lot of the basic whole premise was just looking at sort of mechanically what defines the race, and then sort of thinking about, okay, what should that do? So the gnomes, we said, well, they're small. They are good with illusion. They can talk to burrowing mammals. Well, they should basically have a culture that's more intrigue-driven than strength-driven. You know, they're small and clever. Uh, So with the elves, one of the things that really struck me about them is uh, their age. That in third edition in particular, elves could live naturally for up to a thousand years. Uh, And... Which, you know, even dwarves and gnomes only lived between 200 to 300 years. So it was this substantially longer time than any other race. And the concept of a single individual living a thousand years, you know, that's the entire history of Galifar right there. Uh, That you're just talking about, you know, this immense amount of time. Uh, At the same time, we're also sort of balanced with this interesting sort of paradox that the elves are not exceptionally more advanced than the other races. You know, we aren't saying that the elves possess, you know, that again, you can still be a first level elf and wizard, if you see what I'm saying. Right. Uh, it's not like their magic is so much better than human magic that, uh, that you know, we're like nothing next to them. 
and again, well, if they've got this culture that's 25,000 years old, if a single elven wizard can, you know, work on it for a thousand years and magic is a scientific thing, you know, why not? You know, what is it that, that holds that back? So you have these sort of two different elements there. Um, the one thing I decided to play with was the idea that if you live that long, it's really hard to let things go. Uh, and that the loss of a life, you know, if you have, again, you know, your most brilliant philosopher and you've had him for 900 years and then he suddenly dies, you know, it's much more tragic than if he's only been around for 30 years. Mm-hmm. You know, it's this sense of, well, he was always there. And so we sort of latched onto that idea that the elves basically were very much about clinging to their past. Uh, and the first thing, this defined the sort of big three-way split uh, between the, the sort of three dominant elven cultures. I don't know if you want to address that before I dive into it. Yeah, well, and and I think um, just to touch on that too, the, the part about like the loss and such is that they the elves in Eberron actually did lose a lot of lives, exactly. Uh, and so there's it's a very uh, culturally ingrained, um, you know, I guess uh, outlook, you know. And and that's exactly right. The whole idea is that the elves began as slaves to oppress people in Zendrick under the rule of the giants, that a group of them, but, you know, really a small group, all things being equal, managed to escape Zendrick after they rose up and fought the giants uh, and, and, you know, made it to Arenal. But the idea was at that point, you're dealing with the people who have lost almost everything and in particular have lost their greatest sort of heroes uh, and, and basically never want to suffer that loss again. Right, right. So they do what they can to preserve those memories, if not the actual uh, heroes themselves. And so I guess that could, that could uh, tie us into these three lines, right? And how they right. um, sort of try to preserve those, those ancestors. Um, so let's go ahead and go into that then. Um, what, what would be the first one you want to talk about? So the core, when we, when we speak of the arena, you know, the core uh, sort of culture, you know, are the, the elves of Arenal and the undying court. And the whole idea of the Undying Court is that they have found a way to physically preserve their ancestors after death. And that they do this both uh, through imbuing them with positive energy that comes both from Manifest Zones to Irian, but also from the devotion of uh, their descendants. That essentially what they figured out is how to make a god, a sort of gestalt god. Mm And so essentially it is the worship of their descendants gives them the positive energy they need to survive. Um, So part of the whole point of this is that collectively the Undying Court is one of the only sort of incarnate, you can point to it over there, this is a force that wields divine power in Eberron. But the thing about it is that it's entirely dependent on the continued sustenance it receives from the elves. And this both limits the primary scope of its power to Aranol and means technically if you did kill all the elves, then, you know, they might manage to cling around, you know, sort of holding to those manifest zones, but it would dramatically reduce their power. Right. And this leads to the second approach, which is the approach of the line of Vol. And the line of Vol basically said, well, what good is it 
if we all die and we can't keep them around. What we need is for our heroes to be able to preserve themselves. So this is where they turned to negative, you know, what we call Mabaran necromancy, uh, where this sustains the person with the energy of, of uh, Mabar, negative energy, but that, that requires them in some way to continue to draw life force from others. So the point is we make you a vampire. Well, now you're entirely self-sufficient, but that's because you have to take that life force from others around you. The Elven theory, you know, this is not absolute uh, fact by D&D mechanics, but the Elven theory is that all negatively charged undead are inherently consuming positive energy to survive. That basically a lich doesn't have to drain uh, like blood the way a vampire does. But what they say is the lich is consuming just the ambient life force of the world to sustain itself. So this is where the, uh, the Undying Court basically views undead the same way we do global warming. They basically say, you think that that lich isn't causing anyone any trouble, but trust me, sooner or later, you keep messing around with all these undead, you're going to basically just drain the life of the world. Right. And that's why they seek to destroy these things. So it's almost like so a, you had, I was going to say, it's almost mm-hmm. like a like a current, if you will, like where, you, where, where you're going to have a negative charge that's going to draw positive energy toward it, right? Like in, in that regard. Right, exactly. Yeah. And, and this is basically the fundamental difference that came between those two forces. The Undying Court says... We give voluntarily, you know, we're giving them what they need to survive. And and that's good. They aren't taking anything that we can't afford to give. The Vol says, yes, but if you're not around, they'll they'll die. We're giving them the power to take what they need. But the Undying Court says, but you don't understand. They're still taking, right. you know, and now you aren't controlling it. Um, so that's where, where that all came from. But it's basically, again, that concept of sort of self, self-sustained negative energy necromancy versus freely given positive energy necromancy, but that in turn limits, you know, that ties the undying court to the living elves. Uh, and then this then ends with the third path, the Ternadal. And the Ternadal basically said, well, we don't, we're not going to keep them alive physically. We're not keeping our ancestors alive as sort of mummified corpses. Instead, it is we keep their spirits alive through us by reenacting their deeds, by sort of becoming as close to them as we can. We essentially become the avatars of our heroes, and that keeps them alive and keeps them from sort of fading away in in dolor. Right. Now, um, and for them, there's mm-hmm. still sort of a, a ritual involved with that process where that patron will select them and, you know, then they sort of adopt that persona and such. Yeah. So speaking to the Terrandal specifically, it is a point of when you come of age, uh, the priests will, will read the signs and say, you've been chosen by this ancestor. Mm-hmm. And this is something that there is no mechanical representation of this you know is something we just say it is something that we say this is why the Ternodal are so exceptional but there is no mechanical representation of it but the theory is you know they believe that it is because they are touched by and guided by that you know a patron ancestor had them 
And that that spirit being with them is part of why they're so remarkable. You know, the more they emulate the ancestor, the more they are sort of, you know, they do become its avatar and embody it. Like I said, there's a couple things. Third edition, we had a prestige class called Revenant Blade that was supposed to really represent that mechanically. But the whole idea is it's it's up to you as a player, and we'll come to that later, to really decide yeah. how closely you feel that guidance of your your patron ancestor. But the premise is, you know, they say the ancestors really are with them. And part of the point there is they really say it is your duty. If you've been chosen by this patron ancestor, you need to basically follow in their footsteps because you are keeping them in existence, you know? Right, uh, right. And if you don't, you know, you are basically uh, essentially killing one of our greatest heroes. So there's yeah, very and, much the sense of duty to it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and, and uh, you know, speaking to the idea to the, that mechanically there's not necessarily something that um, is represented in like the rules, for example. Mm -hmm. But I think this speaks to where, you know, especially in Eberron, there's a lot of lore that really just lends itself to just good role playing. Exactly. And, and we'll, we'll get more into that, but, but I think that's, this is a, a prime example of where that occurs. It's like, you know, you think about the culture, you think about the implication of what this means for the character and the, and, and, and uh, what sort of drives them. And, and to me, especially, it's something where we've basically said, again, compared to, to most other races, uh, the Terranidal are just some of the best warriors in Eberron, uh, sort of in terms of level, in terms of things like that. And to me, part of that is they are being guided by spirits from the past. But again, that's not a mechanically represented thing. You can't banish the spirit from them. Or something like that, but it is saying there really is something exceptional going on there. Right, right. You know, and I think this also speaks to something that we'll get into in the GM section is, um, you know, I, th I think what makes elves really special in Eberron mm -hmm. is the uh, the cultural aspect. Yes, you know, there's like they really are. Um, I don't want to say dependent, for lack of a better word, though. Uh, they, 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 what what flavors them is that culture. You yes. know, and not just they live in the woods or whatever, but that there really is about like tradition and, you know, uh, the, the ancestry and, and so on, uh, which, yeah. And, and I definitely agree with that. And I think to me, again, that's part of everything in Eberron is saying, let's look at what has been done before. Let's try to capture an element of that, but let's also consider something new. And so, I mean, elves always have been presented as, you know, an ancient race, highly magical, you know, I mean, we wanted to sort of keep with that concept, but give it its own reasoning. You know, the reason they have so much skill and power is because of this intense devotion uh, to their ancient traditions. Uh, one of the things that ties to this Going back to the fact that elves live so long and this quirky little thing that was in third edition when we were doing this, uh, where when you were making a player character, you had this starting age table. Right. And as an elf, your first level character starts out as like 112 years old. And one of the questions, and uh, I believe uh, Order of the Stick has a, has a really excellent uh, sort of strip that plays off this concept is this whole question of why does it take my elf a hundred years to reach the same level of skill that a human has at 18? You know, are elves really stupid? 
You know, are they actually like babies for 30 years? And that's kind of a ridiculous image when you think about it. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, what I like to play to is both to, to go against that, but also play to, but also why are they not a thousand times more advanced than humanity when they live so much longer and have so much more time to study things? So what I like to play with is the whole idea of basically crystalline versus fluid intelligence. You know, the whole concept that children can learn things much more quickly and easily than adults can because their minds are at a state where they are more flexible. Whereas as we, we grow older and we go more to crystalline intelligence where we're very, you know, we can hone what we know, but it's harder to pick up new things. Thus, it is harder for grandpa to use TiVo because it's just completely different from what he's using. Right. Whereas a two-year-old can learn to use an iPhone because they, they're just completely open and flexible. So one of my ideas is saying that actually humans and elves mentally actually work at about the same pace that a 20 or 30 year old elf isn't that different from a 20 to 30 year old human. But part of it is they really focus on tradition and on doing things, mm -hmm. perfecting things at this degree yes. of sort of OCD that humans just don't have. So the example I've given, which, you know, there's again, no mechanical anything to this, but it just is something I like, is to say that verbal components, for example, are completely different for humans and elves. That if we're casting the same spell, we're both casting a fireball, that the elf is going to actually pronounce the incantation, not just, you know, in this very complex way, but like they're going to have the accent perfect of like the first elf who made that spell. Like, I mean, they are really just going to, they have this science of how verbal components work and they will spend, you know, five years studying fireball just to get that right. perfect. Yeah. Whereas, like perfection and purest, you know, like a purest approach. Like right. this is the true pronunciation of, you know, of, of how you evoke that cosmic power. And, and you don't have to do it that way, but why wouldn't you? You know, this is this is the truest expression of this. Right. And then conversely, one of the ideas, as I say, that sort of arcanics uh, magic teaches that there is no right incantation. It's that literally you have to find the right incantation. Like you jury rig it a bit and, and figure out what works for you. Like it's close enough. It's on a basic theme. I can use spellcraft to say, oh, you're casting fireball. But uh, balance it out. Figure out which syllable sort of plays to your end sort of thing. And the, this is part of that idea of human magic is essentially more almost ramshackle. You know, it's it's more I'm, I'm figuring out what works best for me and doing it. Uh, and that that's fast. I don't have to like try and get this perfectly right. But again, to the elven ear, it's like, oh, my goodness, that's that's offensive. Right. You know, how crude. Well, and for a human being, there's there's a there's a sense of, of urgency and maybe even some impatience because they don't have that perspective exactly. of a they long lifespan. They can't take five years to spend. To yeah, perfect. and and the answer the the point would be the elves are right. You know the the way they've got is the most sort of absolute perfect way to do it that anybody can use. It's that humans have found yeah, but I can find a thing that works perfectly for me that's easier without spending all that time. So it's sort of neither side is wrong. 
the elves are just saying, well, we're not going to take that shortcut. We're going to use this, this better way. Uh, and as I said, that's just a sort of simple example of that idea uh, that an elf could learn. They could be a first-level uh, wizard in 20 years, but they take all this extra time because they are following the traditions of their folks, and they just have this sort of polished style that, again, technically is more advanced. It is harder to do. It's just that that doesn't actually give them a mechanical advantage, if that makes any right, sense. Right. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so let me ask this, just on, on a brief tangent. Then, if we're yeah. if we're talking about traditional uh, learned magic, right, and and different approaches with in, in that regard, then how do you see in in your Eberron um, innate magic? So, for example, like um, the sorcerer, or even like say a gnome, right, mm-hmm. who has a racial you know, sure. power of some sort or mm-hmm. spell. So, uh, so, so yeah. the gnome is totally different. Because the because the main thing I will note is that supernatural abilities don't have components, so True. the gnome isn't casting a spell. The gnome is inherently, you know, the whole idea is that magical energy is innate to the world. Some say it comes from the ring of Sybaris. Some say it's just around. It is an energy that is manipulated. Uh, through either divine or arcane magic. And so the gnome's ability is just like a blink dog can teleport. They are drawing on the magic energy sort of unconsciously and innately. Same thing with a dragon mark. Uh, The sorcerer is a tricky one because technically you could go that way, but technically sorcerer spells have verbal and somatic components. Now, the argument there is does a sorcerer actually use something that is similar, you know, again, both a sorcerer and a wizard cast a fireball. Both of them have verbal components. Is the sorcerer's verbal component anything like what the wizard is using? Or does it just mean that the the sorcerer has to shout fire? Uh, And to me, I lean more towards that direction, that it's, it's sure they somehow have to make a verbal sound, but if they actually have to learn something like a, a proper incantation, that seems weird. How are they any different from a wizard then at that point? Right. Um, right. So this is my point is what I'd say is that you have these sort of three tiers that really what an incantation is, is almost like a ki, uh, you know, sort of, it is just a, a verbal expression that helps you channel the power. Uh, and that the elves essentially make it more complicated than it has to be because they're basically saying this is the first way this was done and we're always going to do it exactly that way. The humans have said, well, actually, we've been tinkering with it and we've discovered you can do it a whole bunch of ways and that the sorcerer is just instinctively doing a thing that works for them and like every sorcerer might have a, a different, you know, if you can argue that there is a syllable of power that is fire that the sorcerer may literally, it's sort of a Patrick Rothfuss thing. They've just mm-hmm. intuitively grasped the name of fire and shout it. The wizard works it into an incantation. The elf has a particular incantation, but again, with spellcraft, anyone can hear it and say, you just use the syllable for fire. If right. that makes any sense. Right. And it, it, mm-hmm. you, you could even say maybe it's sort of like, um, uh, maybe even like an art form where you have a trained musician 
who, um, you know, they, they study, they, they understand musical theory, you know, and all these things versus somebody who's just has this inherent ability. Absolutely. Right? Um, yeah. And it, and it could be something like that. They're still singing notes. They're still playing an instrument. They're still, they have techniques. Um, but for some people, it just comes naturally. They just have natural rhythm, you know. Yeah, I mean, sorcerers, sorcerers are tricky because there's all sorts of different explanations for explaining their power. You know, the other option is right. dragon blood. And dragon blood mm-hmm. would argue that it's a supernatural ability. Uh, but supernatural abilities don't use components. So, you know, right. it's, it's tricky. Um, yeah. I've played sorcerers before when I've had a dragon mart sorcerer is just saying, oh, their spells are sort of literally an outgrowth of the power, an amplification mm-hmm. of the power of their mark. Right. A Birindar right. sorcerer mm-hmm. who commands powers of the storm. Um, but we're drifting off into, into random different territory yes. here. <laughs> you know, bringing it all the way back, the point to me yeah. was ultimately saying an elf doesn't have to spend a hundred years to master these skills. It's that they choose to spend a hundred years mastering these things because they are mastering all these traditions that go with it. That the Terranidal warrior, you know, it's not just that they learn the most effective way to fight. They are also learning stances and history and, you know, they are learning to hold their sword Mm -hmm. in exactly the way that their ancestor held their sword. And they might spend three years learning that, you know, and so that it's it's back to that. They put this level of sort of OCD onto things uh, that humans just don't have the time for. Um, and so, again, an elf raised among humans, you know, taught at Arcanics could be a wizard at 30. They just if they went over to Aranol, people would be appalled that you know it's the the elf wizard at a hundred what they have done is mastered everything that makes them recognized as an adult uh among their culture it's not that technically they were literally a baby for 40 years if that makes any sense right right yeah, it's it's a training uh, a process. It's it's that expertise, that perfection, that you know, even that sort right. of uh, apprenticeship. You would right? study. Um, you would study with another. You know, with a master yeah. for thirty years, even though technically, you know, you've got all the skills that a human would just say, "I'm good to go. Let's go." This is what you do. This is our tradition. This right. is how it's done. And this then ties into that basic concept that the elves are exceptionally good at what they do. You know, the Terranidal are sort of one-on-one the best warriors in Eberron. The uh, the Arrhenae do have a greater percentage of high-level spellcasters than any other, you know, culture in the Five Nations or in Corvair. It's just that they also aren't as innovative as humans are because they aren't trying to be innovative. They're trying to perfect what's been done. Now, so is that to say then, like if I'm thinking about, you know, either as a gym or as a player, if I'm thinking about elven culture and, um, and you know, whatever it is they're mastering, whether it's combat or magic or whatever it might be, um, that they are adhering so closely to, to tradition that they sort of abhor any kind of um new you know like any sort of ingenuity like it's like no 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 no. we don't we don't want to 
you know, go into new territory, we're okay with, with what we already know and what we I want think to, to a large degree, yes. Or, I think that that's sort of the point of they're saying, mm-hmm. essentially, we've got it all right. All you need to do is follow the path that's been laid out, you know. Uh, and I think it's a definitely an interesting path for a player character who's an elf to be saying, no, no, I want to be, I want to be doing new things. You want to be changing this. But to me, it is a, that is a powerful thing of they're just saying, look, we're just more advanced than any other culture here. We've got it. You know, we've perfected everything. Just, uh, just master the, the teachings of those wiser people who have gone before you. And of course, should you come out ahead of that and actually do something amazing and new, then, hey, you'll become the wise person of the next, you know, you've proven yourself worthy to be a new patron ancestor or to join the undying court, but they still don't encourage it because they don't really think anyone can, you know, they don't think you could do that, you know, so... Yeah, you'd have to right. really if prove you pull something it off, to, in order for them it, to... It's essentially, yeah, you're liable to, to sort of be an outcast until you do it. And then they'll say, oh, wow, we were totally wrong. Okay, you're our new hero. But, you know, they don't really, right. really have confidence that there are new heroes, you know? Um, which, again, gives lots of opportunities for a player character. Yeah. So do we want to um, do we want to dive into GMs or did you want to touch anything on regarding the the Elven Dragon Mark? Well, I think we I think on? I think let's do just touch on that very that? briefly, which is to say again that basically, really, what you have because the line of Vol was wiped out, and this is the point, is that Vol embraced negative necromancy, uh, the Undying Court embraced positive necromancy, and then the rise of the Dragon Mark of Death and the alliance between Vol and uh, a line of dragons basically was used as an excuse, really, for the Undying Court to eliminate its political rival. Uh, and Vol was wiped out. Its, uh, its allies were essentially told to either abandon their ways or take exile. And that's where you get, uh, first off, the roots of the blood of Vol uh, through traditions carried by elves, elven exiles into Lazar uh, and Karnath. Uh, and, you know, where you get the blood sails and things like that. But at the same time, you had the Fiarlins, the elves with the other dragon mark, essentially saying, hey, you just wiped out one dragon mark. You know, maybe we're just going to leave. You know, maybe we don't think so much of this. Right. And to me, right. uh, so, you know, you have the the path of the Arini. You're this, you know, uh, person from this these ancient traditions. You have your family. You have all of this. Uh, but you're from this mysterious land. You have the Terranidal, you know, with this war focus on martial achievement and your patron ancestor. Uh, you have just, again, elves who've just randomly grown up sort of among humans, or you have the houses, Fiorlin and Thorani. And the idea to me is that Fiorlin and Thorani have held too many of their old traditions, but they have also still picked up a certain amount of blending with humanity at the same time. So that's where personally, if I was making a Thorani elf, I wouldn't necessarily feel that I have to start at 120. I might just talk to my GM and say, could I be like 50, you know, or 60? You know, that basically, again, they don't have quite that weight of tradition. They have some of it, but it's not as extreme. 
Uh, and frankly, if you were just playing an elf who grew up in a neighborhood in Sharn, I'd say you could be a thief at 20, you know, and you're a kid, sure. Uh, but again, like I said, the whole point is if you go back to Arenal, they're going to be appalled by all your, your incredible lack of form. Right. Um, right. So, yeah, let's move on with that. Yeah. So, um, so let's, let's go into uh, how GMs can, uh, you know, sort of bring focus to the elves and, and, and shine a light on them a little bit. Um, so one of the things is, you know, again, you know, I think longevity is going to be the sort of carrying theme for this episode, really. Um, I think bringing attention to that is important. Um, considering for example, like, I mean, the last war was a hundred years, Right. So, uh, any elven characters that you have in play, whether they're NPCs or PCs, um, they should probably be aware of maybe some events or just, you know, maybe collaboratively create some historical events that they had endured or that they had witnessed. Consider that any elven character from, uh, Valinar or, uh, you know, uh, Arenal, you know, they're older than the war. And if they're an NPC, if they're a commander, if they're someone like that, they're considerably older than the war. Like they would clearly remember a time uh, before it. Um, and so, yeah, even going into, you know, we have a cook in Sharn, uh, who's the highest level NPC in Sharn, I think. Uh, and she's an expert and she's a cook. But again, she's probably a 600-year-old cook. And the idea that right. to her the war isn't even, you know, a majority of her life, you know, it's like, oh yeah, she clearly remembers Galifar. Uh, you know, this is something I've called out with, you know, if you have even an elvish priestess of the silver flame from Thrain, she could still be as old as the silver flame, the church of the silver flame, which is only 500 years old, you know, right. and, right. and that's a big one to me is set aside the last war, the Church of the Silver Flame has not been around that long. You know, she would remember clearly the, the lycanthropic purge. Uh, she might have known Tira Marone, you know, and that these are things, you know, knowing historical figures, you know, uh, I was friends with King Jarrett, you know, or things like that is a very right. interesting thing that you can play with. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Or even even um, family so, you know, is a key point here, is that players often don't delve too much into their own families. But the idea of a Fjarlin elf who can basically say, oh, I knew your grandfather. Uh, and in fact, he wanted right. me to give you yes. this thing. Or this, we had this bit of unfinished business. Right. So, you know, having a Fjarlin or a Thorani uh, or even someone from Arenal, you know, sort of showing up with this, I made this bargain with your family, you know, three generations ago, but let's settle it now. Right. You know, is a potential thing you can use to right. kick off uh, a story. Yeah, that's even a great way to get maybe two um, player, exactly. or player characters exactly. together. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's good stuff. So, yeah. yeah. So, so I think the other thing is, um, you know, emphasizing, 
sort of a sense of, of embraced tradition. Uh, we, we, we've talked about this. Um, and not just perfection with like, say, combat or magic, but also just in craftsmanship. Like if we, if the, if your, if your party of, of players are going to, uh, say, an elven enclave or maybe Aranol itself, um, remarking on the, the yes. architecture, mm-hmm. right? And how perfect and, you know, maybe geometrical or, or um, whatever it might be, or even just the right. quality of the materials themselves. And, um, I think there's, there's and, and that's space the big there. thing to me is to me, the elves are all about doing things well instead of doing things fast. And it's that whole, right. I will spend a year making this particular cloak, but this cloak will last you a hundred years, you know, as opposed mm-hmm. to I'm just making mm-hmm. these as fast as I can. Um, right. Ma- mass production versus high quality. Which again is part of that idea of why the five nations has advanced so much quicker over the last thousand years is because they're embracing mass production. They're embracing industry. Whereas Aranol is right. still all about the master craftsmen doing things right, you know, Uh, But part of that is that idea both of fine things and also heirlooms. The idea that as a a Valinar or, you know, Narini, even a Fjarlin or or Thirani, you know, that something you have might be, you know, 3,000 years old. You know, this is an amulet handed down. It's just a locket. You know, but it's something that has been handed down uh, from generation to generation. Um, And as I said, that's a thing you could do player or game master. You know, it's the as a player, uh, you know, just think about again, even if you have just like a trinket from that trinket table in 5e, how long have you, what is the story behind that thing? But as a game master, again, even if it's not supremely powerful magic treasures, you know, having a player receive something that is this is a sword that has been in your family for 10,000 years, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, when we met at Dragon Con, we talked about, mm-hmm. you know, raising the stakes, right? Um, so that you could even play into that where you have that, that locket or that sword or whatever it might be. That's not necessarily magical, but it's really important. And, to and your so character. coming back you know, to and, the game master side of things, this is where that's the kind of thing I'd offer to a player. You know, not necessarily have them ask right. for it, but say, you know, I'd be willing to say that that sword of yours, which again appears for all purposes to be, you know, I'll say I'll make it masterwork just for free. You're going to have a masterwork sword and it's uh, an heirloom sword of your house. And maybe as the story goes on, they'll discover that it's a legacy weapon and how to unlock its powers and stuff like that. You know, that's something uh, we can play. I was, yes, I was just uh, going to mention that. But, yeah, weapons you know, of legacy. Starting off, well, as, as far as you know right now. Mm-hmm. And that was actually a thing I did with a Valinor player that I had. Uh, his whole, we'll sort of get into this as we go. His whole character concept he came up with is that the most of the elves of his family were chosen by this great swordsman and that he'd been chosen by this archer instead and that he'd rebelled against that concept, stole his family's sword and, and fled Aranol being like, I'm, I'm nice. a swordsman. I know it. Uh, and that one of the things that right. happened in the game very early is I gave him this, this awesome bow. 
And part of the point is, well, are you gonna are you gonna embrace that bow? And we were talking about, you know, the whole idea for the character himself. You know, he didn't have a decision. You know, the whole idea was he was going to struggle with should he follow the, you know, should he embrace the the patron who had chosen him, or could he somehow force his way down this other path? And it was gonna be something that we were gonna enjoy exploring. Right, right. You actually uh, even did an Ebron expanded article um, back in 2005, where yeah, you, you talked about turn it all legacy items. Uh, yeah, it's true. And I did another article. There's so many that that, uh, you know, one could could link to if we wanted there was although actually that's right this one was a behind a paywall uh i did one on vidalia and Talene, i think it was and oh, the nice. point of that yeah, was yeah. that one of the things that makes me sad with the valinar uh, is that we haven't talked about more of their ancestors that the idea is these were these sort of epic people and they should have artifacts and weapons of legacy. And, you know, I mean, there should be all these sort of stories right. and treasures. And, you know, they're basically the elven equivalents of Mordenkainen and Bigby. And, you know, there should be spells that this is, you know, Talene's Fist of Fury, you know, and sort of things like that. Right, you just blew and, my mind. Yeah, And That's that good we stuff. just haven't done it. So that article, the whole point of it was to at least say, well, here's two of them. You know, here's an examples right. of what it would take to be one of these patron ancestors. Um, and like one of them, for example, I think uh, uh, Vidalia, I think, has a crystal eye. And, you know, I was throwing that in there just randomly because, hey, you know, someone could get Vidalia's crystal eye. That would be cool. Um, yeah, that is cool. But... But that's exactly sort of the same idea of in thinking of the elves, think about their history, think about their legends, and that they should have these, these you know, immensely important artifacts, which are both important in terms of power, but also in terms of sort of their link to their heritage. Um, and that you have this history that, again, goes back 30,000 years. Yeah. So, uh, so one other piece I want to, because we talked about, um, the Dragonmark houses, uh, with, with uh, the Elven Dragonmark houses specifically. Um, I think that's another piece that, that, that can be brought in as well for the GM, um, where they can talk about that conflict between the two houses and their role, you know, among the 12, as well as, um, you know, depending on the story in the campaign, of course, whether or not they come into play, but, um, you know, uh, drawing in elements of those tensions and that rivalry um, and that sense, uh, as you mentioned, of maybe they don't spend a thousand years or a hundred years, I should say, um, perfecting certain things, but they're still really good at safe. Well, and, and this is sort of the right? thing of the idea that the, with Ferrani and Fiorlin and Thurani, uh, Ferrani, as I like to call them, uh, they, a lot of people are like, well, why don't everyone know they're spies and assassins? And it's, they don't all know that they're spies and assassins because they're really good at entertainment. So, you know, people don't immediately assume that they're doing other stuff on the sly because they're really good. It's like saying Elvis is a secret agent. You know, I, I suppose that's kind of crazy. Why would he need to be? You know? And so right. part of the idea is that they are 
sort of fantastic entertainers who have mastered these things. And one of the things I call out in one of my articles is the idea that they have these sort of like heirloom performances. Like, you know, whether it's a song or a dance that like only one living elf is allowed to perform. And that sort of being the person who is essentially, I am the best at this particular piece of art right. is sort of a, a thing of pride. And it's not a physical treasure, but it is something that could be bequeathed to you, as it were. You know, we declare you can go, right. you know, go through the trial, challenge the the current uh, holder of the song and and essentially earn this song or something like that. So so they're not as sort of obsessive or OCD, in my opinion, as the Aranol, uh cultures, but they still do treasure pieces of the past. That makes sense. Right. Right. You know, and that's interesting because I can imagine too, like that one particular performer, uh, that they might tour right. that act, you know, but then also they might, they might be that a really good performer, but they might also might be right. a really good agent, you know, and, and not the touring is part of them going and, on and a particular part of mission. The point is that within the house, the secret agents are actually a small percentage of the house that a lot of the folks in the house are purely on the entertainment side. That again, the entertainment is a 100% legitimate business uh, that they're really good at. Correct. And right. they just have this side business that they're also really good at. Um, but they don't sell that side business to just anyone off the street. You know, if you want to find something out, go hire an inquisitive. You know, now if you're a king and you want to find something out, okay, now they'll talk to you. Um. Right. You have to have an in. You have to be powerful. Right. You have to. You know, um, yeah. But, right. and, and people can say, but it's the house of shadow. Isn't that kind of obvious? And it's, yeah, but it's shadow like illusion, like weaving things. Because they use phantasmal force and illusion and such in their performances, you know. Um, but, but definitely this also comes back to age. That the schism, you know, within the age of elms was trivially recent. You know, that yes. that uh, any sort of average elf who's, you know, 300 years old knows everybody on the other side, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, right, right. There might have been uh, – there might kind of be family in some respects, you know, and or, or that somebody right. they grew and up so with. And so you even, have you know, that, uh, that sort uh, of uh, thing of it can be very fun if you're playing and we're moving, we're sort of fudging over our lines here, but it can be very interesting, you know, if you've got someone playing a Thorani elf to talk to them about, well, do you have, you know, a best friend in Fjarlan or a rival or, you know, something like that that you can play up as an ongoing recurring right. character. Um, well, let's, let's use that okay. as a segue into players, because I think with that same idea, you could even have two players, uh, each playing a different, you know, a character, a dragon marked character from maybe not even dragon marked, just a member of those houses. Um, and maybe they do well, know I, each other, you know, from, before we fully embrace that, I want to actually step back one last moment on the GM thing yeah. and also speak of another way to oh, use sure. elven age to drive a story. And that, again, is what I sort of hinted at when I had the idea that the elf comes to you and says, hey, I was working on a thing with your great granddad uh, and saying that that is the sort of thing is elves can have really long term stuff, even more so when you get into the undead elves 
or you get into the Terranidal where they could be retracing the steps of an ancestor, you know, who was doing something before, you know, in the age of Dakan, you know, and that basically being able to have a thing where they show up saying, well, you know, uh, 13,000 years ago, uh, you know, my patron ancestor was doing this thing over here. How would you like to help me out with that? Or like I said, you know, six generations back, I was doing this thing with your family. How would you like to finish that job? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as I said, that's a sort of way to play into that. Uh, you can have someone who either has direct personal contact with a piece of history or indirect, you know, through that, that role of um, – you know, a patron ancestor or something like that. And finally, there's the fact that the the elves are some of the few folks, especially the Undying Court, but even some living sages uh, have a much bit, uh, better grasp of the prophecy than any of the other human races. And that could, again, nice. reach out to players to basically say, you know, they might be a little more direct about it than the chamber is going to be because the chamber has that vast draconic perspective. Whereas elves might say, look, I've identified you. You're a prophetic nexus. This is this stuff that could happen around you. Let's work on this. You know, that that's a way nice. uh, to, yeah. to drive that kind of story. So just something to think about of a way to use that age uh, as part of a story thing. Yeah. I re- and I really like that idea that you just mentioned about having that, uh, an NPC that might have known one of the players, you know, f- great, great, great mm-hmm. ancestors, mm-hmm. you know, um, that's, that's really well, cool. I'm, I'm actually, I'm, that's sticking well, to my brain right now. <laughs> things with it. Like I almost think going back to the, the TV yeah. show arrow where he's got this, this, you know, book from his father of things he needs to solve. If you could do something with it, like say this guy's been in dreadhold for 200 years and he's only just gotten out and he's like, you know, me and your great, great, great grandfather, we had a thing we were going to do and you got to help me finish it. You know, and it could be we're bringing down, you know, Cult of the Dragon Below or we discovered about the Dreaming Dark or, you know, whatever it is. Or it could just be purely local, you know, just dealing with some some little thing. But I'm saying, uh, you know, that idea of something like Dreadhold as a way of saying this is why this guy's been out of commission for three centuries, you know, but now he's back and ready to to do something. Yeah, to pick it back up. Yeah. Anyhow, going back to players. So we're right. jumping on to players. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I'm, and I don't want to touch on this too much. We, we talked already about like the history, you know, due to longevity, they're going to, they're going to have some, um, a player character is probably going to have some knowledge of recent history, especially if we're, if we're sticking to say the 110 year age for a starting adventurer. Um, probably the scope of the last war yep. is probably good enough. Um, I would, I would say, um, but I, I think we covered that pretty well enough. Earlier. But, but no, I mean, Unless I do think though it is thoughts. interesting to think, especially if you're doing, you know, uh, a rainy is again, what did you spend that hundred years doing? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, just think about doing, that right. whole idea of you're not practically at first level better mechanically, but is it that, you know, one thing particularly well, you know, what is the thing you perfected right. that you do that? you know, that way of doing this better than anyone else, 
you know it's right, it's you right. fish so it might be if you're fishing um, that you know you have the perfect cast and it doesn't actually end up getting you fishing yes. better but every cast you make is this one identical perfect cast you know just what is it about right, your style right. that even if again it's not practically better but it's perfect what is that right Right. Like if it's, you know, it's not tying in, you know, again, every <laughs> you know, knot you tie is going to you know, be, you know, just like that, you know. Perfect. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So, uh, yeah. And, that, and that's just a flavor like thing, you know, it doesn't, or, or, or you can, you know, if you're playing fifth edition, you can put your proficiencies in there. If you're playing three, five, you could, you could dump your ranks in that. Um, if, if you want to do that. Um, well, so, yeah. and that's, and that's yeah, a that's, thing uh, where three, five, you know, that's where you might get a skill focus feat or something like that and saying, I'm just really good at this. I am right. better at this than most people mm -hmm. of this level. And you might not, but you know, I'm just saying that that's something that's a logical thing for elven NPCs to have is things like skill focus yeah. because they are very focused on specific things. Absolutely. So an interesting thing I came across when I was doing the research uh, from the old articles was the outlook regarding physical beauty. Because in most settings, you know, elves are very fair and you know, they're very beautiful and so on. But in Eberron, they see it as unimportant. And this relates to the whole... Um, uh, the way they regard death because they know that they're going to eventually uh, age and, you know, they age for a very long time and, um, uh, or they might end up becoming a noble who's then accepted into the undying court and they know that they're going to slowly decompose. So they, some of them, some of these elves, um, they might wear masks instead of dealing with cosmetic um, applications or cosmetic beauty, or they might even disfigure themselves, which I thought was mm -hmm. remarkable. Um, it's not something I ever paid attention to. Yeah, one of the um, lines we specifically called it, out is the Gelian line, is uh, an Arrhenian line specifically noted for that, what we call half-life, that sort of decomposition effect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I th I think that's really and, cool, and I, I think as a player character, you know, choosing something like well, that and I'd, be, I'd say that you, know, you also really have unique. just pictured in the original book, you know, the elf with the the skull tattooed on her face, and I think that's yeah. a sort of halfway yeah. point to that is definitely as you said, mm -hmm. embracing that idea that the physical is temporary and somewhat unimportant. Uh, now right. the, the right. Irini do a different, not the Irini, the Terran all do a different approach, uh, because what they're about is when you look at me, I want you to see the ancestor. And so that's right. where their thing is wearing veils. Uh, and they have what's mm -hmm. called the shell too, I think, uh, that is, you know, basically, uh, emblem you wear, uh, on your headdress that is the emblem of your ancestor. So the idea is you have the shell too, uh, and then you mask your face in battle so that again, when they look at you, what they see is the ancestor. Um, right. And right. that's back to that sort of idea that for them as well, it's less about you and more about what you represent. Uh, Right, yeah. the patron, uh, and yeah. and the the Terranidal don't follow that that disfiguring concept, but it's still the point is that they are not as vain about their appearance as much as they are about uh, 
again, following their path. Now, with all that said, I think we've also said they appreciate fine things. But to me, again, that's almost more about the quality of it than purely about glamour weave or, you know, fanciness for its own sake. You know, and and interestingly is if you think about you know, look. So, so their their right. their body, their their material body is is right. going to age. It's going to decompose eventually, and, and so on. Their legacy are these things that they pass on through generations. And so, you know, creating these beautiful, durable things that they can pass on, and that can, you know, um, that future generations, thousands of years later, can well, still use. Uh, and you know that, that I think there's. And there's now value we're there. stepping into the GM player thing because uh, I have an NPC I've been using in the game I've been running recently, but it's just as easily something I might do as a player. Of for me, the holy symbol of the Undying Court is the mask. You know, it is the the right. death mask that you wear. Uh, I have a priest in the campaign I'm running of the Undying Court who basically is a sort of carouser. That he's basically like, life is for living, you know, let us enjoy all the pleasures of life while we can, because that's what being alive is. But when it is time to do his duties, he puts on the mask. And while he is wearing the mask, he is representing the court and he is deadly serious. And, uh, you know, it is, this is the face, I am the face of the court. But when he takes off the mask, mm-hmm. you know, well, then he is just, you know, he is just this elf. Uh, and, and that, again, part of his lesson is, again, enjoy life, the, you know, enjoy, experience life in all its different things before you get to death. And this is one of the reasons that we've said that the Undying Court is one of the people who will do resurrection casually because they're like, well, you're not done yet. It's not time for you to, you know, approach something like undeath. Uh, You need to fully experience life uh, before, um, you know, we, we take you to death. Right. Uh, right. But I definitely, I definitely think, you know, it's important also just the things we mentioned before. I just want to call back out that idea. Do you have a relic, even if it's a trivial, non-magical relic that is important to your family or your line? Um, you yes. know, what is it that you treasure from your past? What's a story that you've always carried with you? You know? Right. Right. A song, a you know, depending on on your your class right. too, right? It could be it could be maybe a song that that you favor as a part or a well, tale. And I think um, it's an interesting thing with like a wizard to say is one of your spells. Like this spell is just a specialty of your family, and maybe your great 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 grandfather invented the magical magic missile as it's used by elves. And again, it may not be mechanically right. different at right. all, but it's just that's your thing. You know, that's, that's your family's creation. You know, and an interesting thing is, is, you know, when we talk about Eberron and other systems too, um, there are systems that are more flexible with, with powers and spells where you can kind of customize them and then even give them yeah. unique names. Um, so Savage Worlds is all about trappings, for example, and you can, you can, you know, yeah, they have these powers, but you give the flavor of whether it's like a lightning effect or a shadowy thing, um, and you name it, you give it your own custom name. So it could be such and such, you know, ancient elf name, uh, 
you know, magical yeah. bolt of shadow. Well, and, that's, right? and that's the thing is and, I certainly uh, like with that saying that you and I both cast a fireball, but there is something different about them. Even if mechanically they're right. exactly the same, as you right. said, mine is vermilion flames, you know, and, right. uh, the, the color of the flames right. might be different or maybe the shape of the burst or, you know, and it can yeah. always be fun mm-hmm. if the game master right. is willing to then say, Oh, actually I'll let you do a fireball that does radiant damage instead of flame because you're drawing it from Urian or something like that. That could be cool. Right. Right. But, yeah. um, yeah, absolutely. And, and similarly, you know, think about, feel free to ask your game master, can I have my family sword? Can I have, you know, some connection to the ancient past? And work something out together. Uh, I think this yeah. definitely is the critical thing then if we come to the Terranidal. So the Terranidal, which is the Terranidal is the culture that the Valinar come from. Valinar is the land that they have claimed on Corvair. But the broader culture are the you Terranidal. Know, I'm glad you made that distinction because I think I think there's a lot of confusion in that regard um, where people are confused, you know, Valinar is, versus Terranidal. So Terranidal is the culture and Valinar and is the land. specifically, if you're Valinar, right. you are technically part of the army that came to Corvair and laid claim to that land. You know, there are Terranidal right. who have no attachment to Valinar, uh, who have just never gone there or are interested in other things. Some of the Terranidal are more interested in glory at Zendrik, fighting dragons or giants, you know, or things like that. But right, right. if you think of yourself as a Valinor, it means you do have, you did come as part of that army. You probably fought during the last war. Uh, and that's part of the question mm-hmm. is why aren't you with the, the Terranidal have a very strict sort of regimented society. All Valinor are part of a war band. Why aren't you with your war band? You know, uh, was right. it that you are on a leave of absence? Was it that they were all killed and you chose to do something different rather than be reassigned? Are you following the path of your ancestor? But, you know, there's always a question as a, a uh, mm-hmm. specifically as a Valinar, why aren't you working with the Valinar? You know, what is it that has drawn you right. away from your people? Um, and it's very right. valid. One of the things that isn't a very easy an- uh, angle is that you're ashamed of what they've done. Uh, an honorable Valinar might be ashamed of the fact that they did break their contract with Siri, you know, and, right. and betray right. the people that they were working for. Uh, it could be that there was something specific during the war, you know, a massacre or something that you don't stand with. But all of this generally falls back to who's your patron ancestor. If you're playing any kind yes. of Terranidal, the first thing you should think about is who is your patron ancestor? What were they known for? And how is what is your relationship to them? Right. Or even like what qualities do you and embrace what, and of is, that particular... And, do you embrace it? Because like I said, the, the example I right. gave before of the guy who specifically his concept was, I reject my patron ancestor. And that is a struggle right. I'm going to have to deal with. And for him, that was why he wasn't he wasn't there is because what he was doing was shameful. Yeah. He's turning his back on his religious duty uh, to revere his ancestor. And that makes for great right. story. And, and as yeah. I said, I yeah. was thinking long term, he was probably going to end up embracing it. That, you know, I was going to play with the patron ancestor as uh, a, a sort of NPC who occasionally did make her presence known and that uh, part of it would be 
eventually him learning why did she choose him when previously he'd always been chosen by the swordsman, you know, his people. Um, and so basically to me, it is, what is that, uh, who is your ancestor? What are they known for? How does that affect you? And one of the points to me is that, again, they choose you, you don't choose them. And you could have an ancestor who's known as being, uh, you know, a brutal killer of civilians. Uh, and if so, right. it's your job to follow that behavior. And you may hate it, but that's what you're supposed yeah, to do. Right. And so that's the point right. is that people and, – and I write about this in the Vidali and Talene article, if you can dig that up. It's very much talking about that point that people have all these mixed ideas. Oh, the Valadar are incredibly honorable. Oh, they're these ruthless warriors. Oh, they're whatever. And the point is they're all of these things, but it varies by warband because it varies by ancestors. If their ancestor was known for his tremendous chivalry and honor, then uh, – um, then you, they will behave incredibly chivalrously and honorably, whereas their ancestor could be known as a ruthless assassin, in which case it's your right. job to be the ruthless assassin. Ruthless assassin, And yeah. so part of it is yeah. all that thing of as a player, especially because you're just starting out, you know, it is that question of what are you supposed to be like and how do you feel about it? Do you want to be like that? Right. Or or do you resist it? Right. Now, how do you feel about the idea of, say, a GM imposing an ancestor or a patron upon a player character and saying, this is who your patron is? How do you feel? Uh, I think uh, that's got to be something that, again, it depends on the... Um, it depends on the relationship between player and game master. You know, I don't generally like okay, – basically what I'm saying is I would face that more as I might say to the player, I have a really cool idea for an ancestor for you. Are you willing to Are you to comfortable with it? Yeah. Uh, and that there will right, be an right, interesting right. story tied to this. But like I said, I don't like game masters just essentially saying, hey, by the way, your character needs to be evil or something like that. But no, I, I wholly agree. It would have to be a mutual agreement between player and game master before that. But I think it's it's fun to say that then something will be discovered about your character as we go. And we actually had like uh, mm -hmm. the game I'm running now. Um, one of the players is playing a, a Valinor monk, and we worked out a thing. There was this half elf villain in the. Uh, in the storyline and we we threw together a little thing just literally on sort of on the spot of oh she knew this person and that uh this is her half sister and that it is basically incredibly infuriating to her that as a half elf she's not recognized as as a full sort of you know inheritor of her mother's legacy you know sort of thing and that there's this rivalry between them um, because of that. And, and so that was a way of, we didn't get super deep into our background, but we talked a bunch about it, but we still had this idea. And also that is the other thing is that there's far more elves than there are ancestors, which means that there's other elves. If you're a Valinor, there's other elves, uh, who are also emulating Sharing. your ancestor. And what's that right. like? Uh, you know, are, 
Right. Is it competitive? Is it exactly. cooperative? Is it? And this know, is the point of when they put yeah. warbands together, they're going to choose elves whose ancestors are either the same. You could have a whole warband uh, focused on one guy, although you wouldn't probably because they wouldn't have a diverse enough skill set. But you could have three or four of the same guy. You know, basically, we're going to stick chivalrous guy with honorable guy. And then we're going to have a whole team of assassin, thief, and, you know, whatever, because those guys don't work well together. You know, so yeah, yeah. so part of that is when you run into the other person who is also embodying your ancestor, is he your buddy or is he your bitter rival? Um, right. And I could see opportunities also for maybe a war band, you know, a smaller unit is perhaps um, a group who have patrons that in the past worked together Absolutely. as well as a team. Uh, you know, that could be a cool dynamic. But, but this is part of the idea is I like to think that the patron ancestors were, you know, I'd say human, except that they were elves. That, you know, they had flaws as well as their noble characteristics. And those may not have been their defining things. Again, they were fantastic enough to be heroes we never want to forget. Uh, but especially if the player really ends up developing that relationship, that you can have it be something where they start getting, when they're trancing, they get images from the ancestor. They have memories of their life. They essentially discover things about the ancestor. They remember things that, that aren't in the legends because, you know, unless you're that close to the ancestor, you don't know them, you know? Oh, that'd be a really cool way to describe even like leveling yeah, up. You're, well, and well. that's the idea of the Revenant Blade is that you are literally drawing on the skills of that ancient ancestor. So in a way, you can think about the patron ancestors. You know, again, this is something you can work out with you and your GM is almost the way the sovereigns are supposed to work. Like they're there if you mm. listen. You know, that they do, they, right. they sort of provide you with instincts. And like I said, since elves trance instead of sleep, that idea that in a trance you might sort of get a message or a memory or a sense, you know, of something unfinished yeah. or where to find their, their epic blade or, you know, uh, whatever it is. Nice. Um, nice. Mm -hmm. Cool. So... I was going to say, so let's, uh, so, so turn it all. I think, I think we've covered that really well. Um, what about for Ernie, right? So we know, um, so one of the things I, th I thought was really cool in, in one of the articles I read was the fact that they have all these lines, um, and each line is part is really like a city state in, in there. And it's not just one family, but it's actually a collection of different families in this city state. <sighs> That's um, correct. And it's been a little yep. while since I've looked at it, so I'm trying to remember exactly how it is, but it's also not entirely hereditary. There's an aspect of right. meritocracy to it, and it is sort of the people exactly. who like perfect. People can be pulled right. in. And, um, mm -hmm. and yet at the same time, and, and basically this was exactly the story behind the player in my current campaign where the idea is that she is a noble of an Ernie line who has basically run off to become Terranidal and that she's abandoned her, her, you know, sort of duty as it were, because, uh, you know, again, the idea is that, uh, Ernie and, and Terranidal, they are ultimately have roots in the same culture. 
and that to some degree it is right. a choice. You know, that it was saying right. that basically her aunt had gone to the Terranidal, you know, at a young age and that she'd been left sort of uh, with uh, the Ernie line, uh, but that she was now pursuing that path. Uh, and we talked with her in developing her character about both things. Who's her patron ancestor, but what's the line and the skills she's supposed to perfect as part of that line, you know? Right. Um, right. And that was where we have the priest of the undying court who shows up and is basically essentially saying, oh, it's such a good thing that we have someone from the line of Jalian here because we need that, you know, that skill. Um, right, right. Now, now the lines aren't, they're not like codified anywhere. There's a few right? that have been mentioned, uh, but they aren't, right. they aren't codified. There's no sort of formal right. list. Um, so that gives opportunity then for player and GM to define Absolutely, those and things. that's exactly what, yeah, like, what I did with this player was I said, okay, what's your right. line known for? That, you know, every line has something. That basically what you're ultimately getting to is instead of patron ancestor, what you have is who in your line is in the undying court. And, you know, what are they renowned for? And, and that you're still emulating that, even if not quite as specifically, and certainly not as martially. You know, are you known as great orators, great philosophers, great wizards, great priests, you know, whatever it is. But that, that is the big thing is the, uh, the irony is to say, you have deathless ancestors. Who are they? And that unlike the Terranidal, it is literally, have you seen them? You know, has your ancestor, it could be you were called to uh, Shemur Dai and, uh, and given a, a quest by your ancestor, you know, and told, I right. need you to go to Corvair yeah. and do this thing, you know, and what was that? Yeah. Um, because they're still there. Yeah. Yeah, you can. I mean, there you can see them. You can interact with them. You can talk and you to basically them. have these levels and, uh, and of you know the the typical deathless. Uh, you know, you can just any sort of grand house. If you had Downton Abbey in uh, in Arenal, Lord Grantham would be, or at least the Dowager Countess would be dead. You know, and and mm -hmm. three thousand years right. old. Uh, and then above that, you have the Undying Court itself, which is sort of the most truly exceptional and transcendent spirits. But you still have right. a lot right, of right, sort right. of mid-level deathless who are sort of the heads of estates. Uh, and sort of, again, the deathless are more taking the role of guides than leaders. It is we want the living to, to lead the living, but the, the deathless will always be there to guide them and point them in the right direction you know, guide them and protect them. Okay. Right. And I thought it was interesting that there's a component of, um, you know, you have to be selected to become a noble. You have to be a noble to become selected to become uh, mm -hmm. a deathless or an part of the undying court. So it's not just automatic inheritance. You have to, you, you have to earn it essentially. Yeah. And, and that is part of yeah. what, you know, presumably you're doing as a player is, you know, most likely are you trying to sort of find your path to immortality or have you turned right. your back on that for some reason? And if so, why? Right. And that's perfectly mm -hmm. viable for a, a campaign, you know, story arc uh, or a story element, I should say. Yeah. Um, and, you know, we talked also a little bit about like, you know, when you 
like the magic idea, right? Like when you see a human casting a spell, how do you react to that? If you're, if you're particularly a magic user as well, um, you know, that, that and, can and, be a nice little playful thing, you know? thing. Are you basically like fascinated yeah. by, Oh my God, how do you actually manage to make that spell work when your, your technique is so shabby? Are you insulted right. by it? Uh, it pains my eyes to, you know, watch those gestures. Uh, right. Yeah. Do you just go like, Oh God, I hate the way yeah, you do exactly. that. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, again, just that sort of idea that in dealing with uh, other players, you know, think about what it's like to deal with someone who's a third of your age. And, you know, they just haven't right. seen things, right. you know, they just don't know what they're right. dealing with. And even as a first level elf, you're 100 years old, you know, you've just ex- lived more life than them yeah. folks. And how do you... Yeah, you spent... Yep. You spend a lot more time critically thinking about things than any other starting adventure. Yeah. yeah. Anyhow, that's probably about all the time we have. Yeah. Yeah. I think that wraps up everything we wanted to touch on. Uh, so uh, thank you all for listening. And be sure to visit our website at manifest.zone where you can find subscription links to our show, post comments on an episode, find links to our Google Plus, Twitter, and Facebook pages. Uh, and whatever option you prefer, just let us know what you think of the show. Um, and uh, join us next time. Hopefully we'll have a full house uh, with Wayne and Scott and hopefully they're doing okay. Um, we're going to talk about Warforged mm-hmm. and what makes them more than just robots in yep. D&D. You hear that, Wayne? Just <laughs> <laughs> uh, in time and, for Blade uh, just in time for Blade Runner, which I'm I'm very excited to uh, to see that when when uh, when I can. So uh, until then, keep exploring. Thank you, Keith, for your time and uh, appreciate Absolutely. it. Absolutely glad always. to be here. All right, talk to you next time. All right, talk to you next time.